0: Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 39 of Yoga Land. On today's episode, I had so much fun and the great honor of interviewing one of my favorite, favorite people in Yoga Land, Richard Rosen. I remember meeting Richard, I remember the first time I met him. Very clearly, just being at the Yoga Journal office in Berkeley and feeling like a very green editor and just uh, pretty nervous. And Richard is so warm and so immediate and so easy to to like and to get to know and and he's also so knowledgeable. He's the author of four other books: The Yoga of Breath, Yoga for Fifty Plus. Pranayama, Beyond the Fundamentals. He's a wonderful pranayama teacher and original yoga. And he started practicing in 1980. That's actually the first thing I asked him about is the origins of his practice. He did his teacher training at the Original Iyengar Institute in San Francisco. And in the late 80s, he co-founded Piedmont Yoga Studio with Rodney Yee and Claire Finn. And that is the studio where Jason did his teacher training many years ago. So Jason trained under Rodney and Richard and Mary Pafford and several other teachers were on that staff as well. I apologize if who I'm missing, but I know that, you know, Rodney and Richard in particular were just incredibly influential for Jason. So Jason and I both have an incredible respect and fondness for Richard. This new book that he has is called Yoga FAQ, Almost Everything You Need to Know About Yoga From Asanas to Yamas. And it's so great, you guys. It's just, it's quintessential Richard for me in that it's really uh, deep. He did his homework. There's so much research went into this book. He does this great balancing act of offering several perspectives, but then making it clear what his own opinion and perspective is on a particular point point. And I just love the idea of having a yoga FAQ because, as we all know, yoga's—it's—it's it's not easy to uh, to get to all of the answers. So it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. For this interview with Richard, I focused mostly on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. It's one of the chapters in the book, and I thought it would just be very relevant for so many of us. I don't think I know a yoga practitioner who isn't interested in some way in the yoga sutra and, or who hasn't, you know, contemplated the yamas and the niyamas. So we go through that and I hope to have him back again. And Jason is jonesing to interview him. So, uh, hopefully we'll have him back and Jason will do an interview on other parts of the book as well. Let me know what you think of the episode. You can comment on yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 39 Or on iTunes, you could always leave a review on iTunes, or you could follow me on Instagram at Andrea Ferretti and leave a comment there. I thought it would be such a nice way to introduce people to you by going for a moment to chapter five, which is What is Hatha Yoga? Yeah, and I want to just read an excerpt because I think it captures your voice and um, your charm really like your just your ability to write about this topic in such a such a live lively way okay <laughs> so the question that you pose in this the beginning of this chapter is you've been doing yoga now for longer than i've been alive which is not true for me by the way what was it like to practice yoga back in the 1980s and you say i have trouble remembering what i did yesterday and you want me to re- remember what it was like in 1980 what well, was a much different yoga world back then for one thing there were hardly any yoga schools around Unlike today, where there seems to be one on every street corner like gas stations with new ones popping up every day. The reason for this is simple supply and demand. 35 years ago, yoga wasn't the big business that it is today. A recent survey by a popular yoga magazine somehow came up with a tally of more than 36 million yoga practitioners in the U.S. That is so crazy. Yeah. Who collectively spent an estimated $12 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, on yoga in 2015 for everything from classes and workshops to books, CDs, DVDs, props, vacations, masquerading as retreats, and last but not least, yoga togs. Back then, class fees were under $10, there were few books available, and no CDs or DVDs, the earliest yoga tapes were VHS cassettes. Mats could be had for a few bucks, though depending on the intensity of your practice, they'd only last a couple of months at most. Retreats were rare and usually hosted at rustic centers in Northern California and not in India or South America or Hawaii. And everybody, women included, wore wore their old baggy clothes to yoga class, not today's $200 yoga uniforms. Oh, and nobody carried water bottles into class or kept their cell phones next to their mats just in case the president should call for advice on the the crisis in the Middle Middle East. Admittedly, neither plastic water bottles nor cell phones existed back then. (laughs) So I would love to know a little bit more about how you started the Hatha Yoga practice. Gosh. Yeah. All right. I'm going to make you dig back deep into the recesses of your brain.
1: I moved down to uh, the Bay Area in 1980 to, to finish up uh, my uh, matriculation at, at Cal, and I was ex- exercising at the time with weights. I wanted to build up my uh, arms and chest and whatever else I was doing, and it wasn't working very well. Uh, and so, I, you know, I was I was looking around. And simultaneous to this, I had just broken up with my uh, longtime girlfriend, and I was. I was miserable, as as people are when they break up uh, with with their with their with their lovers, and I was sitting around my little apartment one night, and I remembered something that I read a few years earlier when I was still in college, when I was still a humanities major. At the time, it made absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. I couldn't figure out what, what the guy was talking about, but all of a sudden, it, it just sort of it just sort of rang a bell of some sort, and it was a, a quote from Christian Murdy, one of Christian Murdie's books. So I pulled it down, and it was like a 108 degree r- revolution. All of a sudden, everything that he was saying about who I was and what I was feeling made perfect sense.
0: Yeah,
1: And that got me started on reading these books that were related to this idea of transformation or whatever. I I, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. And I came across a book by a guy named Robert DeRopp called The Master Game. He was a disciple of... Um, I can't remember, now, uh, maybe uh, Uspensky or somebody like that. And he said in it that th- the best exercise that had ever been invented was yoga. So a few days after that, I was reading the East Bay Express. Not, i did not even know if it's still around. And there was an advertisement for the yoga room, which was in Berkeley. And I was, you know, down the street in Oakland, just across the border from Berkeley at the time. And I mean, I didn't really believe in messages from the universe at the time, but it, you know, it, it just seemed like a, a pretty interesting coincidence.
0: Was that still Donald Moyer at that time or was that a different teacher?
1: Well, it was Donald Moyer then, okay. uh, but he was, he was the boss at that time. He's, you know, he's since retired. Okay. Uh, so I thought, okay, well, um, it's the best exercise ever. I'll go down and see what it's like. So, you know, I, I was in walking distance of the yoga room. So I did, I walked down and I took a class it wasn't Donald's class, but, um, and, and there it was, you know, and, and I've never looked back. That was the first class. It was, it was like May, 1980. And, uh, uh, that's, that got, that, that got me started.
0: It's so amazing how that time, like the precipice between adolescence and adulthood, is you know for so many of us such a lost, searching time. Just by nature of of what you do, and that I don't know, I have a very similar story. You know, just feeling just so fortunate that somehow I found yoga. Like that somehow it came in at that time because. And also, just like you, I mean, it's, it's funny to, to hear you say, like, I wanted to build up my chest and my arms. Like, yeah, at that age, that's what we care about. Like, we care about our physicality.
1: I was 33 at the time, so I wasn't oh, exactly... I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. No, I was, <laughs> I was pretty far along.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah.
1: I was lucky. I got started when I did, because, you know, uh, you, the, the older you get, the, the more you, you stiffen up and, and, and whatnot.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Two years after that, I decided I'd, I'd take classes at the Anger Institute in, in San Francisco.
0: And was it was it still the one that's out on Terravel? Was it was it?
1: No, no, okay. no. It was okay. it was on Clement Street. Okay. It was in a little cramped little building, and there was a couple. I did a couple of semesters there before it moved over to Teravalle.
0: And like the program that Jason did with you and Rodney and Mary Puffard, it was a two year program, right? At least.
1: It was at least two years. It might have been three. I don't recall. I have my grades here somewhere. I'm the I'm the one who wrote the two books on pranayama, and Menuso gave me a B plus in pranayama.
0: <laughs> That's pretty good for Manuso. Yeah, I would think. Yeah, yeah. You know, Jason spends a lot of time saying to his students, you know, even though the 200 hour training is has just kind of become the Yoga Alliance minimum standard. Yeah. That. Yeah if you feel like you graduate from a uh, training and you know nothing, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It's just like, you're just at the tip of the iceberg. And I mean, I only have done technically, you know, I mean, I feel like my time at Yoga Journal and all of the teachers I studied with there was a lot of training in and of itself, but technically I only did a 200 hour training and I did try to teach after that. And I felt really yeah. at sea. It was very hard.
1: 200 hours is, is, is an introduction, no more than that. It doesn't really qualify.
0: It was for me basically just like a deepening of my own practice and getting to understand that I could have my own practice. And then from trying to make the leap from there to teaching someone was no. just, I mean, I only, I lasted part-time for two years and I, hang up, I hung up my strap. I hung <laughs> up my, my yoga strap. Okay. So let's get into Patanjali. So one of the, things that you talk about early in the chapter is the story behind who was Patanjali like we don't know much about this person but you haven't there's an interesting story about the name how the name the 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 lore associated with Patanjali I was wondering if you could talk through that a little bit
1: there's several um explanations for it a couple of them I don't remember right now but the, the one that's most popular is that his mother whose name was Gonica I really feel that there should be an Asana named after Gonnaka. I think we've got to get rid of some of these Vedic sages and put in some people who are females for a change.
0: That would be great, yeah. Uh,
1: Anyway, she was a yogini, uh, yogini, um, and she was getting on in years, and she was childless, of course, and she was looking for a a child to um, pass her knowledge on to, apparently. She prayed to whoever, to send her a child and she she opened her hands up in, in, in a gesture that's usually called Anjali mudra. and just at that moment uh, there was a serpent looking for a, an opportunity to incarnate in, into the human world and he f- dropped out of heaven into the open hands of, of into the open hands of Ganika. so Pat means to fall and Anjali is is the name of the of the gesture, the open hand gesture. so patanjali is is how the the name came, according to conventional wisdom.
0: Yeah, so given that, I mean, we don't know much more about the actual person Patanjali, correct? And
1: that's my feeling. Although you're going to get a lot of, I'm going to get a lot of uh, blowback on that because there are people who feel that there is, there are some very concrete biographical information about him.
0: Huh, that's funny. I haven't, I haven't seen that.
1: There are people who who. They very strongly believe that there was there was a person named Patanjali. Huh. Remember, he's not the author of the Yoga Sutras. He's right, a comp-
0: it's like the collator.
1: He just cherry picked these uh, these sut- sutras from various sources.
0: So, but given that that mythical story, regardless of what we know or don't know, given that mythical story, it would seem as though he was held in pretty high re- regard, right? Like if he was thought of as an angel who dropped from the sky, so. I'm just curious, like, I think you mentioned, I couldn't, I was looking for the reference this morning, I couldn't find it. But I think you mentioned that there was a period in Indian history where the Yoga Sutra was, I don't know if you said widely read, or if it was just considered popular. I was wondering about just how it was received then, versus how often, you know, modern yoga practitioners refer to it and read it now.
1: What I think I said was that there was a period of time when the Yoga Sutras just completely disappeared from the from the scene, um, that that, that it, it just lost its its, its power, and that it, essentially it's a revival uh, in, of the 18th or 19th centuries. The Yoga Sutra is a is a difficult text because it of the the metaphysics behind it, which is a dualistic metaphysics, which is a philosophical dead end. There's a really there's some really difficult questions that are raised by that way of looking at the world that are not. They're not really sufficiently answered by the text, and also the other thing about Patanjali is he he just pulled the stuff together. The real teaching that that comes out of that text belongs to Vyasa, who, who was the earliest surviving commentator on the text. Now there's some indications some of the um, experts on the Yoga Sutra that Vyasa was a pen name for for Patanjali that he wrote his own he wrote his own commentary. I don't have the the, the chops to really Determine whether that's how true that is or not, but you know, usually what people say is Vyasa lived a few hundred years after Patanjali. But now there's a there's a new a recently book out by David Gordon White on, on, the, on a, the biography of the Yoga Sutra, and he makes that statement that that you know there's a there's a chance I don't remember how sure he was about it, but there's a there's a chance that Vyasa was Patanjali.
0: Huh well, that would be smart. He was like his own hype man. <laughs> he <was his> own <laughs> it's like, oh, see, I'm presenting these really minimalist ideas. They're so hard to, uh, to interpret. Let me just interpret these for you. So
1: that, that was the point of it. They, they weren't really meant to be, it wasn't a, the, the yoga sutra is an, is an, is an instruction. It's not an instructional manual like we have today. It, it, it's a, it's a, you know, Cliff notes, it's, it's an outline. And, you know,
0: so why do you think that is? You know, you, you, one of the first things you point out is that, you know, they're referred to as, as aphorisms and, and you don't think of them that way because an aphorism, cl- usually the meaning is clear. It's yeah. a short, pithy phrase, but it's also the meaning is crystal clear. And they're, they're obviously not crystal clear. Like they're open for interpretation. Do you think that was intentional to allow for interpretation and even evolution? Of the ideas?
1: That's what's happened to the text. I mean, you know, the, the, the translations that come out nowadays are adjusted for sense, modern sensibility, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I people are going to maybe uh, protest against that, but...
0: Well, I mean, you, there was one, when you go into sort of some of the individual yamas and you talk about brahmacharya, like that's a prime example of how that's changed. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. it
1: it would be a very popular text. I don't believe no, (laughs) if if people were strictly brahmacharya. um, Yeah, I mean, that that's just not going to happen anymore. Um, And, uh, you know, so it's been it's been it's been jiggled a little bit, you know, so that they talk about appropriate appropriate sexuality rather than just, you know, no sex at all. No, no, no physical sex, no thinking about sex, nothing that could possibly lead up to sex. I mean, you know, it's just like just cut it out of your life completely.
0: Yeah. You may actually go into this in the book and I haven't gotten there yet, but you know, how did it become such a, such part and parcel of modern Hatha yoga?
1: It's a really good question. (laughs) One possibility is that, um, toward the end of the 19th century in, in, in India, you, you may know this, that Hatha yoga was, had deteriorated in, in, in its, in its status. And it was looked down upon by most of the middle class and, American uh, Indologist as well, and when Vivekananda came to this country, Swami Vivekananda came to this country in 1893. He presented a, a form of yoga that was based on the Yoga Sutra. You know, it wasn't really uh a strictly a, a strict interpretation of the Yoga Sutra. It was his was his hit on the Yoga Sutra, and so I think that really that really gave people the idea in this country that people in this country the idea that um the Yoga Sutra represented the the, the true yoga.
0: Ah, uh, okay.
1: So you know, I think I think, it's, I think it can be traced at least par- partially back to um, Swami Vivekananda.
0: Did he call it Kriya Yoga?
1: No, that was um, no, no. He called it um, Raja Yoga. Okay.
0: Okay. okay.
1: Ra- the Royal Yoga.
0: Okay. Again, a smart spin on things. Yeah, it's a spin.
1: His his book Raja Yoga is really the first modern yoga book. So if you want to if you want to look at the sort of the origins of modern yoga, that that that's certainly one of the books you you have to try to have to try to read. Okay. Uh, How successful you'll be is another, another another question.
0: You know, in the in the overarching teachings of yoga, most of the teachings are are like you, you mentioned this earlier. Most of the teachings are non-dualist, and Patanjali is a departure from that. So,
1: that's my take on it. Uh, that's as far most people's
0: as, take on it, I would.
1: Well, you know, I think a lot of people, a lot of a lot of the modern commentators, translators try to try to spin it in a way that that's more of a Dante, that's more monist. Mm. It makes more sense to look at it that way, and you know, and that's what. That's why you know you can do that sort of with with the sutras because they are they are written in a, in a certain way that, that they're meant to be interpreted and they can be interpreted in various ways and I think you know if you look at, if you look at enough translations, I have about twenty five translations of the yoga Sutra. if you look mm-hmm. at enough of them, a lot of them are, are trying to are trying to cast it in, 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 a, in a monistic sense
0: hmm. I guess I was going to ask you know, do we know at all what the influences were for Patanjali to come to this place. Like if, let's just say we agree with you <laughs> that it's-
1: It was Samkhya. I mean, they were, they were you know, sister or brother, whatever you want to look at it, um, uh, Darshana's viewpoints. I don't really know much about Sankhya uh, in that way, but I would imagine that that's where uh, Patanjali got his metaphysics from, from the Sankhya uh, teachings of Kapila. But I, I, can't, I can't go any further with that one than, than just that.
0: Okay. To just to put it plainly like in the original hatha yoga texts like patanjali's raja yoga classical yoga whatever you want to call it patanjali's yoga like was not were not was not related to the original asana hatha yoga texts correct
1: i'm sorry was not was not what what
0: like do you mean the, so like the hatha yoga pradipika the garanda samhita like was they're not related at all to patanjali they're not connected, I guess.
1: Certainly there's, uh, there, there's an influence in, in there somewhere, I, I, would, I would imagine. But no, um, there's, there's, there's this big um, misunderstanding about Hatha uh, yoga and, and classical yoga that the former is, is, is a preparation for the latter. And that's based on a huge mistake that people are making when they, read, when, they, when they read or actually don't read the text all the way through. So my take on it is that certainly in the historical sense, the yoga sutra probably... And spread influence in succeeding texts but hatha yoga is a different trip entirely than, than, than classical yoga
0: right so i guess what i'm i'm wondering is since since it's you know it's a seminal text in modern yoga teacher trainings and you know often if you're just an asana practitioner and you're just first start getting interested in quote unquote yoga philosophy you go you're taught the yamas and niyamas like yeah i guess i just wonder what you think personally of the yoga sutra and where it lies within modern Hatha yoga. Like what, is it important? Is it not important? Is
1: it? It's important in a historical sense because it's, it's the first systematic presentation of a yoga practice. Mm. But as far as anything else is for me is concerned, I I would just assume not teach it at all. If if I had had a limited number of texts to teach because um, you know, it's, it ends in a complete rejection of, of physical of the physical world. I mean, I, that's my take on it. Again, yeah. You know, as long as you're associated with matter, you're you've got a problem. And it's not just it's not it's not epistemological. It's not something you have to change your attitude about. It's a, it's ontological. In other words, you're you're stuck until you until you shed your relationship with with uh, Prakriti and, and that means you, you die.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I just can't see the point of a yoga practice that diminishes the value of of being alive and being in the world. Hmm. And and again, this is, you know, this is my, this is my understanding of it. And I think there'll be a lot of people who would object to that idea. But as far as I can tell, classical yoga is all the suffering. I mean, it's it's fairly clear, you know, it's right in the, you know, it just says that. And um, the whole idea behind classical yoga is to slowly shed yourself of your mistaken association with with, with matter, Mm -hmm. which includes, your body and your mind, and you know, I really don't. I don't really feel that's a useful way to go about practicing yoga.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For me, you know, yoga is is a is a is a discipline that that increases your feelings and, and your and your relationship to the world around you and the people around you. So, I mean, I would you know not pay as much attention to the yoga sutra in a training class as as is as done nowadays.
0: Yeah, and also like it takes away from. um the idea that embodiment is just part of nature.
1: The the body was looked on as, as, as sort of this as, as this problem that you had to get rid of. Right. And being, you know, an expression of, of the goddess,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, so I, I can't really, you know, I, I just really don't understand anymore why, we're, and, and, and the yamas and niyamas are, are very limited. Right. I, mean, I, there, I have this, section in there where I fill it out with all these other yamas and niyamas.
0: I know, I love that. Can you talk about some of the ones that you found? So you said you found at least like 60 other behavioral guidelines in different texts.
1: You know, the, the, the ones that are in, in the Yoga Sutra are, are fine. You know, I, I, I go along with nonviolence and, you know, except for Brahmacharya. You know, there's, there's compassion, there's generosity, there's charity, there's, I don't know, there, there's a bunch of other ones. I can't remember.
0: Courage, you know. I think.
1: Courage, yeah. I mean,
0: fearlessness. Yeah, you said fearlessness. Maybe that was all that
1: sorts was... of very sort of sort of um, positive values that are, that are just not in that text. And uh, I, I didn't. I, the problem is that people only think of those five yamas and five niyamas as the yamas and, and, and the and the niyamas. And there should be a, there should at least be an awareness. There's more behavioral injunctions than just those ten.
0: Right. I mean, maybe if yes, maybe if it's taught as this system is a starting place that where the end game isn't necessarily i mean that's the difficulty that you're talking about is that the the end of this system of thinking isn't really aligned with so much of the way of all of the other ways that yoga is taught
1: no yoga is changing and i mean you you have to you know we have to understand that these older texts have 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 a limited value for for modern for modern practitioners i mean you I was just reading um, an article yesterday that on, uh, from Yoga International online that, that they put, they they pulled out from one of Georg's first uh, firstine's um, text and you know, Georg was an amazing person. Um, he was he was incredibly smart and he was you know, he was a walking encyclopedia. Yeah, on, he really know.
0: was. He really was.
1: I was really fortunate to be to have a you know have a relationship with him over the years, but he just couldn't get the idea that you just can't practice traditional yoga in this country. I mean, it just won't fly. It won't fly. You know, he he really was a, he was a traditionalist and he was very, very, very um, discouraged that how little we understood about the tradition in this country, Mm. which, you know, which he was right, of course, but Americans aren't really big on tradition. And, um, and the the way that yoga was practiced in India just isn't appropriate for the way it should be practiced in the West. And yeah, you know, we we have we, we just have to, we just understand that right now we're in a, we're in a phase the, the beginning phase of, of a yoga uh, revolution and it's going to take many 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 more years before we really get the gist of the practice and how it's going to really be, be transformative for us in the West. Mm. So you know right now we're like little babies in, in our cribs and we're wiggling our fingers and toes. And that's what we're doing. We're we're jumping around in rooms and things like that, and that's just what we're, that's just where we are. It's age appropriate behavior.
0: <laughs> okay, so two questions related to that um, for students and teachers out there who do want to get some guidance from the historical texts and who do want to feel like at least they are, even if they're not, you know, a living perfect perfected embodiment of the tradition, that they're informed by the tradition. Like what? texts do you think are are valuable practical texts for people to look practical,
1: at practical practical texts
0: <laughs> well okay let's start with valuable
1: say, say for example um the shiva sutras not not the shiva samita but the shiva Sutras. is a very very beautiful um text on you know our, our relationship to the self and also the vinyana bhairava has has all these different meditations in it which are you know and, and the interesting thing about that is that When we're told to meditate, oftentimes we're told to go in, you know what I mean, and separate ourselves from the outside, which is fine. But, you know, the outside is also, according to the Vijnana Bhairava, a source of of insight into who we are. And so they they talk about whoever wrote the book, I forget uh, now, but the author talks about listening to music or contemplating your lover's face or looking at a sunset or something like that, Mm -hmm. where it's not just going in, but you're also going out to look at to look at the world as a source of, of meditation and insight and, and, and wisdom mm. to me that's always been a, a very useful uh, text for, for uh you know the idea that meditation isn't doesn't really separate yourself from the outside
0: world mm-hmm. right i mean that seems really useful because it's <laughs> like we're sort of alluding to you know in in modern life that's not often possible yeah To just, you know, even people who like, even for my life, you know, I used to at least be able to do a one day silent, quote unquote, retreat with Sarah Powers, you know, every few months, I can't really do that anymore with my life, at least just at this point in my life. Yeah. So yeah, that seems valuable. Any others?
1: I'd have to make a list. I can't, I can't. uh, um, You know, the modern books to me are are a lot more useful right now than
0: than, So what are some of the modern books that you appreciate? And you could also make a list after and I could put them on the website if that's easy. I
1: think it'd probably be better if I did that. Um, But certainly, certainly as far as information is concerned about Hatha yoga and and the tradition, I think it's important to understand what the tradition is all about. And so certainly one of the most important writers nowadays is, is James Mallinson. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him.
0: I'm not actually. I'm not.
1: He, He is hooked up now with, with, Mark Singleton, and they, they put out this, this new book of translations of the, the roots of yoga. So if you Google James Mallinson, uh, you'll, you'll get some, uh, some articles from him that are just amazing. They're, they're, they're really informative about the, the Hatha tradition. And Mark Singleton is, is a great guy, too, for, for information about modern yoga. You know, The, um, the Yoga Body is, is a really useful book for, for, for understanding where, where you came from.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time since I've looked at that
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, the books are not the book is not easy to read because he's he writes as an academic, which is what he is, which is a very odd contrast to, to the way he is in person because when you get to him in person, he's really funny, and you know down to earth, and he has his great slideshows, and he's he's really a very interesting lecturer. But I always get these complaints about his books being, you know, too hard huh. to read, you know, but it's just people, people are a little lazy about that kind of stuff, you know? Uh,
0: well, I don't know. Being an editor, I would say that I don't agree with you. I think it's really important to try to communicate to your audience in a way that makes sense to them. And, you know, maybe a, if he were open to a, like an editor who helped him with that, then
1: he, he actually is. He he wrote a couple of articles for Yoga Journal and sent them to me to dumb them down.
0: uh uh-huh. so, <laughs>
1: oh goodness! Uh, he also sent me a, a, a copy of uh, his manuscript for The Roots of Yoga to tell me, to ask me about what the, what the possibilities would be for uh, selling it to a, the average yoga student. Yeah, the information is, is invaluable, but um, you know, the way it's presented, it, they're just they're, they're just academics, and that's what, that's what they do. But you know, you, you got to plow through that kind of stuff. You got you got to do it, and um, it's just the way it's set up. Uh, James and Mark and uh, Georg Furstein, who started out that way as an academic and wrote these really dry books on the Yoga Sutra and things like that. But toward the end, he he really loosened up quite a bit and his books were quite popular. Uh, Books were written in in, in a popular way. So, yeah, Georg would be really important. David Gordon White, another uh, writer. um,
0: Has Edwin Bryant published uh, we, Edwin I,
1: Bryan has published a, a long translation commentary on the Yoga Sutra. Okay. Which is probably one of the best ones out there. If you want to really understand the text, he, he, really, has, um, he really has a good take on it. Um, uh, Edwin Bryan, yeah. Uh, but I don't know if, he's, if he has any books out.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen any. And I, um, I do remember his name coming up a lot er- earlier in my years at Yoga Journal. Yeah,
1: It's a great translation um, commentary. If you, if you want to study the Yoga Sutra, then you know, you should get Georg's book for the, for the basis for the, you know, for, of comparison. And then, you know, like Edwin Bryan and Chip Hartranft and um, maybe a couple of others. But, you know, those are the ones you want to get.
0: I remember from Yoga Journal, I got Chip Tramp's on your recommendation. Uh, Georg did the philosophy part of my 200-hour training. So oh, yeah. I actually got, you know, got to be in the room with him. And um, yeah, I, f- I just, you could feel his brilliance. You could... Um, It was pretty amazing. And we read a bunch of his books. But I did feel at that point in my study and in my training that a lot of it went over my head. And I really wanted to learn it too. Like I really wanted to to be a good student. But um, I think this is something actually that is a gift of yours. And I love that it comes through in this book too, which is that you care about, you know, doing your research and you present I mean, I, th- I think you just do a really good job of saying, this is my point of view. And there are people who might take other points of view, but I'm going to keep going with this trail of my point of view. So you get to hear it. And your, your voice, I mean, as long as I've known you, you know, I got to edit you a little bit at Yoga Journal. You just have such a natural writing voice, Richard. And it's just so nice that your humor comes through. Thank you. Yes, and so I really want people to know that about this book. It's like I, I just, when when the book arrived, <laughs> did I tell you this already? The so we got two copies because you sent me one, but I also had ordered one. So the book, oh. the first book arrived, and I opened it, and literally Jason grabbed it out of my hand, <laughs> and he said, "Can I take this with me today?" And I'm like, "No, no, this is my book. Put it down. I'm preparing for an interview." And he kind of went, oh, okay. And so then the second book arrived a couple days ago and I gave it to him and I said, this is your copy. And he said, thank you. And we were both kind of nerdily like sitting at our kitchen counter. I think both of us were side by side looking through the book. And I said, this book is such a great idea. It's such a great idea because I just know from my own experience, like it's really, really there's just such a vast breadth of of information out there in in terms of the tradition and it's like a lot of it is hard to get through and you pick you pick a little bit up here and you pick a little bit up there and then you're like thoroughly confused and you think I'm gonna come back to that and then you don't necessarily come back to it and I just I don't know I really love the way it's written I think you just did a great job I love it
1: well thank you I mean I, I it was it was a it was a slog I mean I, I, I there were moments that I thought to myself this is ridiculous I'm gonna give this thing up
0: I'm sure I was wondering how long it took you
1: Couple years, you know, I kept getting extensions. And, and one time, I came to the, my second extension. I said to myself, "I can't do this. I'm going to quit." And I so I I, I wrote my editor at Shambhala said, "I'm going to send you the, the 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 advance back." And she said, "No, you're not."
0: Oh, what a good editor! She just like kept you on it. And
1: so she gave me another 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 extension. Um, the problem with this book was that many of the questions have two answers or two two or more answers. And trying to balance that out, you know, trying to be fair to the people you don't agree with uh, was, was very difficult at times.
0: I think you do it really well. And I think it's very, very important that someone do it because I think I've been talking about this a lot in my recent interviews. Um, you know, so many of us come to yoga and whether or not we realize that at the time we're seeking an answer to something, right? Whether it's like my back hurts or like my psyche, <laughs> my psyche hurts or my heart hurts or whatever it is. It's like, we're coming to it seeking answers. And so, so often in the beginning, like if we, if someone tells us in a yoga room, this is the answer, period. Yeah. There's no other interpretation.
1: Turn around and walk away.
0: Well, and, and we go with that. And and I just think that there's, I think that the practice teaches you that having the ability to hold lots of different possibilities and think critically and think in a nuanced way. Like, can you imagine how much more humane our, our civil discourse would be right now if people could accept the fact that there could be more, more than one answer to a question, proper answer to a question? No, very true. I, I think about that all the time lately.
1: Yeah, I think there's a mystery at the heart of the universe. And I think that's 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 the first thing we have to get uh, our, our minds wrapped around, is that there, there are no ultimate answers at this point in time, for us, and uh, you know that we just have to accept the fact that there, at times, there just is no answer. They, you just have to do the best you can, and hold hold on to the information as provisional.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the best what you know at the at the time. But you know you got to be ready to drop it at, at a moment's notice when something more more reasonable comes along.
0: The other question I had for you a, f- a few minutes back was, you know, you talked about how we're sort of in our infancy in the yoga practice, and so. Do you ever think about where you would like to see us go, or what that possibility could be?
1: Well, I do think about it uh, quite a bit, but I, you know, I, I don't really have a really strong idea. What I, what 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 I've what I've tried to do at times is look back at the tradition to see what kinds of things, in a sort of a symbolic way, that they were doing to create a, tra- a, tra- a transformational practice, and then try to find out what it is that we need. To fill in the gaps of what we're doing are here. I'm not sure uh, what what what's missing and what we need to do. I think it's it's going to be a natural process over over a long long time, Mm -hmm. and that you know that we all have to contribute to. I I mean, um, I I think it's 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 a group process, and the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the yoga groups are sort of separate from each other.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: There's not a lot of cooperation between them at this point because you know they're businesses. They've got their own trips and for, for what they what they want to do um with their resources. But I really think that, that what we need is, is a cooperative effort among a, a lot of different yoga schools, which is gonna be really hard to get.
0: That's a good idea. I mean, I think it I don't know. I what do you think of this opinion that I have? I I see, you know, what you're suggesting is what you're suggesting would require is sort some sort of central leadership. And I guess what I've seen is that once we get into a, a yoga system, a modern yoga system where there's a central leader, it gets too dogmatic for anyone who, yeah, d- who d- you know is on a little bit off that path to be accepted into the fold.
1: There has to be a cooperative effort. I mean, it, but putting any any one person in charge is very tricky. I, I don't think that would work. Right. I, I really don't. I I don't know how it exactly to set things up because I'm not really an organizer like that, but. Obviously, there are schools of yoga that that are that are quite a bit different than than the, the more popular schools of yoga, which you know are focused on asana.
0: When you were talking, I was thinking like a congress, <laughs> you know, like not one central leader, but a co- like you said, a cooperative board of some sort of people who are willing to coordinate efforts and. But-
1: willing to listen other people, everybody else's opinions. That that that's the hard thing to do. And really you know for my western bias I, I really had a hard time listening to people who um taught from the heart or from tradition you know the tradition says things that that are, that are patently not factually true but they're they're emotionally true or they're 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 viscerally true i, I don't know what the, what the word might be but you know the, the in the academics the western academics need need to have card concrete facts before they'll say anything at all about yoga Whereas you know the, the traditionalists will say whatever, whatever they people have believed about yoga for for hundreds and thousands of years.
0: Or if they experience it internally, right? If they're more experiential, perhaps.
1: Exactly, and so you know it, it's, gonna, it's it's really hard for 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 somebody like myself who's who's a head person a lot of a lot of the time to to, to listen to people who come from the heart.
0: This is Jason too. I know now why he's you are his teacher. Well. <laughs>
1: yeah. I've been very fortunate to have students like him over the years. Uh, anyway, uh, it's 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 it really takes a lot of effort on on your part, on my part, to overcome that that bias toward you know this you know yoga is five thousand years old.
0: Right.
1: You know what they're trying to say is yoga is very very old because it's it's inherent in, in the human being to want to do yoga. So you know you can put a date on it as far as it, it's 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 manifestations, but you can't put a date on it. Because it's always been around in one form or another. Mm. So you know when the people say it's five thousand years old, it's just like yeah, it it is that old in a in a certain way, but not in a in a concrete way.
0: In a traceable way, yeah. Um, just one more thing popped to mind. There's a point in the beginning of the book where you talk about how Carl Jung believed that Westerners couldn't practice yoga, and he makes this like gross generalization, right? That Indian people are more introverted and Westerners are too extroverted Um, and I'm not Indian but I I thought that was kind of offensive that he would say that but but at the same time I thought the the idea that Westerners are very extroverted I was like wow well he kind of has a point. I was just wondering what you thought about that.
1: Well. He's probably right in relationship to Indian yoga. I mean, uh, you know, you, you take a you take a plant for out of one environment, stick it into a, a one that doesn't really suit it, and it's not going to do well. And I think that's what's happened with yoga. Where a lot of us are a lot of us are trying to maintain a grip on the tradition, which is very admirable. And you know, you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But at the same time, we're different people. Now, that's that's also a question whether. Western consciousness and Eastern consciousness have any kind of relationship or whether they're, they're different different birds. Hmm. There's got to be some kind of adjustment when it comes to the West. You just can't maintain the tradition in the in strictest sense. And the tradition itself has changed over time. It, so you you really can't say the tradition is is, is, is carved in stone, except it, it, the only thing about it is it's changed a lot slower than it is now. Things are changing in, at, a, at a very rapid pace, which is what happens in this country. Mm-hmm. I think Jung was probably right in the sense that if we try to mimic an Indian's practice, it, it ain't going to do too good. Uh, but you know, what, what does it what does it mean to be a Western yogi? How does our consciousness um, interpret this this need to be to, to know the self? It's a big question. Yeah,
0: you know? it's the big question. It's the big and question. it's
1: going to take time to answer it because we just I, I mean I don't know. Maybe there there are people out there that you'll discover that that have an idea of what what that means.
0: I mean, yeah, it's a. I think that's a good. It's a good place to stop and for, you know, for people to contemplate because it's, there is, I don't think there is an answer yet to that.
1: Well, I, I think, um, let me just say that yoga teachers have a, a very um, sh- strong responsibility to work, to find out these, these the, find out the answer to this question. What is Western yoga going to be like in the next 50 or 100? I mean, this is the generation that's going to pass on to the next, the next generation, the, the, the knowledge and, and, and the uh, and and the insight and you know you you're you're a yoga teacher if you're a yoga teacher you have a responsibility to work these things out
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so so there
0: all right (laughs) i love it that's your last word that's all you're gonna say about that (laughs) thank you richard thanks so so much for talking to us
1: it's great to see you
0: it's great to see you too I love how Richard ended the interview. It's like that big open question that we all have about where we're headed and what kind of groundwork we can put down now for future generations to learn about this practice, to live this practice, to learn the techniques and the principles that we feel are making our lives better. Again, you can find show notes for this episode at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 39. And until next week, everyone, enjoy your practice.